Good morning. So, I don't know where you disappeared to, but I, I appreciated your testimony this morning, Brian. I'm excited. I'm encouraged by your life. I'm encouraged by the Dasco family as a whole. They are so cool, and it's been a joy and blessing getting to know you all and uh, having you part of our church family. And uh, I would say that you can work on your sense of timing, bro, because uh, it's going to be cold out there going through that baptism and getting that water. Not necessarily, my flesh is not anticipating it, but my spirit's really thrilled and excited. So knowing that you're suffering with me, I mean, be blessed alongside is, is good. So uh, over the past couple of weeks, for those of you who've been a part of our services, that you know that we've been going through the book of Ruth. And um, the book of Ruth is a fascinating book. It's one that has... Um, it's a story that impacts the way we see faith and understand loyalty. John Piper shared uh, this once about this book of Ruth. And he wrote, at one level, the message of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. I think what he's saying is sometimes we can expect that when we become Christians, right, when we accept Jesus and we have this relationship with him, that everything's supposed to be cleared up and we're supposed to have this straight path and everything's clear and nice, and then we find as we live this Christian life that that's, it's a winding road. This life of a disciple, this life of, of having Jesus as our Lord and Master means there's a lot of confusion. Sometimes we're wondering where we're supposed to go next, and, and we want to know, and sometimes it's not clear, and it just, it just seems a lot, very winding, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of twists and turns. I remember when I was a younger Christian, and I still wonder that today sometimes. I'm like, Lord, if your intent in saving us is to give us this renewed relationship with you. Why didn't you take us from the moment we were saved, right? The moment we made the decision to accept Christ, why not just take us home? Why give us this time on earth for us to sin and mess up and screw things up, right? It just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And now I realize that a lot of these ups and downs and journeys and trials and temptations and times of having to persevere, this is what makes us more like Christ. This is how we're being conformed into the image of his son. And there's something faith-building and hope-building in that. And that's what this book of Ruth is all about. And for those of you who've read the book of Ruth, you know that it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not really a story about Ruth. This is not Ruth's story. The book of Ruth is actually Naomi's story. Naomi is the one who followed her husband, Elimelech, when they chose to go into Moab because of the famine. It was Naomi who was there in a, in a foreign land with people that she didn't know, having two baby boys and then being raising them to adulthood and then seeing the, her two sons get married and they're building a life in Moab. And it's Naomi who loses her husband and, it's Na and she becomes a widow. And then it's Naomi who's having to raise or, or be with these two adult boys and then all of a sudden see her sons die as well. It's Naomi who's left all alone with no family in the world except, or no immediate family, except for these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so she determines in this moment where she has lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, she's lost her inheritance, her family, and she is, she's embittered. And it's in this state that she decides, well, I'm going to simply return home. Whatever happens, if I die, I die. If I'm miserable, I'm miserable, but I'm going to do it 
the home. And so she determines to return to Israel. Orpah stays with her family in Moab, but Ruth is committed to following Naomi and to being with her wherever she goes. So they return to the city of Bethlehem, which is their hometown. And as Naomi is ruminating in her bitterness, Ruth is the one who's taking care of her, taking care of them. She goes out to the fields, as we read in chapter 2. She goes out to the fields to glean food. And what gleaning is, is that practice, the Israelite, it's a, it's a biblical practice where the farmers are to go through their land just once and not keep going it over and over again to get all of the the grain and all of the fruit that they possibly can, but just to go through it once and whatever is left on the ground, whatever is left on the tree that they miss, the foreigner, the poor can come alongside, the widow can come into those fields and take whatever they want with them. And that was the way that God established for those who have plenty to be able to provide for those who do not. Happens that Ruth finds herself in a field that's owned by Boaz, who is a close relative. And when when she comes home, a close relative of Naomi, and when she comes home bearing this huge basket of food, Naomi transforms from a bitter woman to seeing that, you know, maybe God is with us too. She sees hope. She hears about Boaz owning a field, and she concocts a plan, a plan that will restore her family. And that's where we left off last week in Ruth chapter 2. And so here in chapter 3, we see that plan starting to come together. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you would be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. So this is Naomi's plan. I read this, and I'm like, um... What kind of plan is this, right? This is not the plan of a mastermind. This is more like Doofenshmirtz than Lex Luthor, right? But then if you read chapter 4, you realize, but it works. And so maybe she's more brilliant than we all think. Naomi's plan centers around Boaz, right? And Boaz is a close relative, and he is, in the term that's used in the text, he is one of Naomi's kinsman redeemers. And this is a really important concept to understand. So I'm going to take a detour and explain to you what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. Because this is a really important concept in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and even extending into the New. So, what is a kinsman redeemer? So like the idea of gleaning, which we talked about last week, which is totally a biblical idea, as in it originates in the scriptures... The same goes for being a kinsman redeemer. It is totally a biblical idea. And basically, the kinsman redeemer is the closest male relative to the person who needs to be redeemed. They are charged with the duty of restoring the rights of that relative and avenging any wrongs that have been 
committed. And so when you read the scriptures, for those of you who read the Old Testament law, and God bless you if you've been through the Old Testament law and understand that, right? So uh, if we were to go and travel through there, here there are a number of practical examples in which this idea of kinsman redeemer comes out. In the book of Numbers, it shares multiple examples of if you have a relative, right? If you have someone in the family who was wrongfully killed, then it is the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to avenge them, right? The closest relative to avenge them to kill the killer as it were. And I know that sounds really brutal, but this happens 19 times in the scriptures. You see that the rights of the closest relative is to avenge that wrongful death. And instead of using the word kinsman redeemer, they're actually called the avenger of blood. And I know most of you are wondering about the relevance of that today. Like, oh, that's an interesting idea, kind of primitive, but we would never do that today. I want to share with you something interesting. So a couple years ago, a number of years ago, uh, most of you don't know my brother really well. My brother, Perry, he's younger than me by about two and a half years. And my brother, Perry, let's just say he doesn't emote a lot, right? I mean, he's pretty stoic, He's pretty, and he just doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve. And I remember we were having this conversation. We've had our ups and downs over a number of different years. There are times, there's a year we didn't even really talk to one another. And, and, uh, and so we're in this pretty good place now. And, and so a couple years ago, we we're having this conversation. And out of the blue, and I promise you, just out of the blue, he just looks at me and says, Frank, I just want to let you know, bro, if anyone ever kills you, I will hunt them down and kill them. That's literally what he says to me. Um, thanks, bro. I appreciate that. That's good to know. And I was actually touched, right? Because this was my brother's way of saying that he loves me, but he would never say, I can't remember the last time my brother said, hey, Frank, I love you. It just doesn't happen, right? But if anyone kills you, I'll hunt them down and kill them too. That, that works, right? So Perry was basically telling me, I will be your avenger of blood, right? I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will make sure that justice is done. And so that's, that's kind of what this idea of kinsman redeemer meant in that context. You know, I was, I was going through the scriptures, and, and I know this is totally detour, so please forgive me. I just thought it was so cool. I wanted to share it, that uh, there's this example in the book of Revelation. For those of you who think this is just all Old Testament, in the book of Revelation, there's this fascinating passage in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And what is happening in Revelation 6, for those of you who enjoy it, Revelation is my, my daughter Isabel's favorite book. And there's the breaking of the seal. And so in the break of the first seal, you had the four horsemen, the first four seals with four horsemen coming out. And in the breaking of the fifth seal, there is uh, all the souls of the slain martyrs are found under the altar. And the souls of these slain martyrs are crying out to God. And this is what they say in Revelation 6.10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? On those who dwell on the earth. Right there in the book of Revelation, this is the same idea. God was their kinsman redeemer, right? They were martyrs. They were slain unjustly because they were proclaiming the gospel. And they're crying out. Their souls are crying out, God, you are a kinsman redeemer. When will you avenge us and make things right? And so you can see this idea extends from the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New so that's one idea of what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. But being a kinsman redeemer wasn't always about blood. Uh, there's some other awkward practices, awkward for us today. So if, if, a, um, if a woman is widowed, her husband dies, 
um, and she does not have a son, then the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative, is to offer to the widow, if she wants to, that they would mate and he would give her a son. And I know, again, today it's like, oh my gosh, that seems so weird. That's not appropriate in any way, shape, or form. But what we don't understand is in the days, and if you remember the nation of Israel going into the promised land in the days of Joshua, they broke out, they broke down the land by different tribes, right? So this tribe had this tract of land, and this tribe had this tract of land, and within each tribe, each family was given a portion of the land as well. And so if a woman dies, I'm sorry, if a, a woman is widowed because her husband dies and has no children, that means when she dies, there'll be no one to carry on the family name and no one to inherit the land. And the land isn't just land, do you understand? The land is the practical gift of God, the promise that I am with you and I am providing for you and your family for all generations. This is how they received it, is the land you give us is the promise given to us, the fulfilled promise of God. So it meant a lot. And so it was the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to make that right if that widow wanted to do so. So that's another responsibility. And finally, the idea that kinsman redeemer was practical as well, that if for some reason there's a family and to buy equipment for the harvest, to buy horses and mules and all that stuff, and then we had a bad harvest and our family goes into tremendous debt, we could sell the land. The law actually stipulated you could never sell the land permanently, but you could temporarily loan out the land, sell the land. Or we could sell ourselves as slaves in order to pay off our debt. That was something that was allowed in the Old Testament. And sometimes when we read through, well, the Bible promotes slavery and stuff. No, no, no. Not slavery the way America thinks about slavery. This was, I choose to be in your service in order to pay off the debt I owe you. That was the type of slavery that was implied. In that situation, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, the closest male blood relative, to also pay off their debt and redeem them when they were able to. So you understand this idea of a kinsman redeemer. It's a big one. It extends from Old Testament to New. It's a huge responsibility and an important part of what it means to be family, right? That as family, we take care of one another. We watch out for one another. If something bad happens to you, I will be your avenger. I'll be your redeemer. I will be there for you. That's what the idea of kinsman redeemer is all about. And so if we come back to the story of Naomi, right? Um, well, actually, back up. So it was, uh, we've been in church for about nine years now, Awakened Church. Uh, and uh, I think we've touched over nine years. And nine years ago, most of you weren't in the room of about 30 of us as we were thinking through, well, what would Awakened Church look like if we dreamed about it? And, and we were trying to come up with this little tagline, right, a simple statement to be able to share what our church is all about. And as you know, our, that statement ended up being that we're a church for the next generation, right, to, to, to see reach young singles, young families, and young at heart. That's where we ended up. But before that happened, my wife had come up with one that the idea it should be awakened church like the mafia but holy right and we were really close you think that's funny it's like we were really close to adopting that awakened church like the mafia but holy we thought that'd get attention right so and it's biblical it's it follows line so anyway this idea is is the idea of kinsman redeemer so coming back to the story of my Aunt naomi naomi has a plan and it's an important plan to her because right now she has nothing she has the land, right? And she's returned to Israel. She's back on her land. She's back on her property. 
the place that she was living is probably kind of beat down because she hasn't been on that land in many decades. But she's alone. She, her, uh, even if she, uh, and it's, it's kind of iffy if she's able to have a claim on that land, but even if she does, after she dies, there's no one to pass that land along to because she has no living children. So if you, it's important. You can't understand the story unless you understand her situation. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's too old to have more children. And she is on this family property, right? Her family inheritance, her family legacy. And she's wondering what to do. And this is why she's bitter. She's like, God has taken my blessings away from me. And now when Ruth comes home and she sees this huge basket of, of food and she hears about the story of Boaz, an idea comes to her. Hope is renewed in her. And, and she has a number of options, right? Option number one is she exercises her kinsman redeemer rights and basically says that the closest male relative in my family needs to, if they're single, marry me. Or if they're not single, have a child. Help me have a child, right? But she's too old to have a child. So that's not really a viable option and she's not necessarily looking to get married her other option is well i simply let my line or my family name die out that's another option and it displeases me but that's that's what made her bitter and that was an unacceptable option the third option that she has and what gives her hope is i will exercise the kinsman redeemer rights of my son my slain son or my dead son in her case and that's what she chooses to do. And this is what she's telling Ruth is, my son has kinsman redeemer rights that their closest relative can claim now. And that's what's happening in this story. And so she tells, she tells Ruth to dress up, look really nice, go out on the threshing floor. They're going to be working hard into the night. Find out where he's sleeping. And when he does, you go and lie down at his this is awkward for Ruth, but I want you to see what Ruth's response is in verse 5. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. You see that? Ruth is a foreigner, right? Ruth is from Moab. She doesn't understand all of what's going on. And even if she understands up here, it doesn't have the same connection here in here. She doesn't understand that this is a family's legacy and a family name that's at stake. And yet her response to Naomi is quick, submissive, honoring, God-honoring. And so she heads off to the threshing floor that night where she knows Boaz is going to be. So last chapter in chapter 2, we find that Boaz and his crew have been working the field and uh, over the course of the past couple of weeks they've been gathering grain as a part of harvest time and now it is time to separate the grain uh, from the stalks and that is the practice called threshing right they were separating the the kernels the grain uh, from the stalk itself and so when you have a large amount of grain the way this is done is you have what's called a threshing floor which is this large flat area usually on top of a hill or at least in a large open area open farmland so what they would do is they would bring all the stalks and they would get what's called a sledge and a sledge is is this uh, uh this large wooden thing with just um rocks and pieces of metal underneath and they would attach it to an animal and they would just smash and drive that sledge 
over these stalks over and over and over again. And what they would do is they'd separate the husks from the grain, the kernels. And so, uh, and what separate the chaff from the grain, as it were. And then after they'd driven the sledge over this thresh or the, over the stalks on the threshing floor over and over again, then what they would do is they would take the grain and throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow away and the kernels would be left on the threshing floor. So that's what threshing looks like. And so if you understand that, then you realize that the, the sledge part is easily done, but to throw the grain up in the air and have it blow away, it takes the perfect conditions. It takes right conditions. You want a wind that's blowing, but not so hard that the grain gets blown away, but not so light that the chaff is not. Does that make sense? And so this is how Naomi and Ruth know that they're going to be on the threshing floor because the wind conditions were just right. And so this is what uh, Boaz has been doing. And the wind is just right for winnowing grain. And so in verse 7, it continues. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. So it's been a good day. It's been a hard day, a long day of work and winnowing the grain. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family's redeemer. The harvest season has gone well. Boaz has been eating and drinking. He's not drunk. There's some who said he's drunk. I don't see any indication of that, right? He's not drunk. He's just tired. He's well-fed, and he's lying down, satisfied after a long day of work. And he found this private area, while others are still celebrating, he's found this private area to go ahead and go to sleep by this huge pile of grain. And this is where Ruth enters, uncovers his feet, and then she lies down perpendicular to him. And so somehow he wakes up. He feels the wind on his feet. He feels this body on top of her feet, whatever the case may be. His feet just get really hot after a while. And so he wakes up, and he's like, what is going on? There is a person at my feet. And then Ruth identifies who she is and asks him to cover her with a part of his blanket. Now, I don't know what you've heard about this part of the story, but I will say Ruth is not looking to hook up, right? That's not what she's, she's doing here. She's not offering herself uh, physically to Boaz in that, in that moment. That's not what's happening here. Ruth also isn't asking to be covered because she's cold, necessarily, though she might have been. Um, what this is, it's a, uh, it's a Hebrew idiom. And the idea behind it is, is uh, right now as two people, there's a blanket that separates us. And if you would lift up the blanket and put it over me as well, the offer is that we would be one, right? Not like once, but like in marriage. And what Ruth is implying through this Hebrew idiom is, I'm offering you myself to you if you want to make me your wife. And so this is something that Boaz understood um, and finally, by invoking the idea of family redeemer, if you're wondering why she said that, she's basically saying, put this cover over me. Here's what I'm offering to you. And the reason why I'm offering this to you is because you're my family redeemer. In other words, Boaz, not only is this invitation for you, but you have the right to take me as your wife. And not only the right, but maybe even the duty to do so. And then you see... Boaz's response in verse 10. 
the Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty than you did before, for you've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, we've already seen Boaz's character, but Boaz easily could have taken advantage of this situation, but he doesn't. He could have been offended, but he is not. He could have wondered what is going on, but he doesn't. Right? Instead, he's joyous. He celebrates because he realizes he's an older, single man. And he knows that Ruth is a Moabite and she's a young woman, maybe even an attractive woman. And, and maybe she's willing to look past that big mole on his head. I don't know why he's still single, but just, you know, that she's willing to look past it. And he desires him. She's offering herself to him. Right. And here's the thing. And here's why Boaz commends her. He knows that Ruth is a Moabite. And that means she's not bound by the laws of Israel. You understand? She's not bound by these laws. This, this tradition, the family name, the family land, it is no relevance for Ruth. She can go and marry anyone she wants. She is free to do so. But in choosing to offer herself to Boaz, Boaz realizes you're not just doing this for me. You're doing this to honor Naomi and to give Naomi a legacy. To give Naomi descendants as well. And that's why he says to her that you're showing even more family loyalty than you did before. Because it's one thing to come into this land with your mother-in-law, to work the fields to make sure that you guys have something to eat, but to offer yourself, and not only to offer yourself, but to offer your firstborn son, right, your firstborn child to Naomi as well, that is a huge sacrifice. And what I mean by that is... Um, do I want to go into that now? So maybe some of you have wondered why in the Old Testament over and over again we see the genealogies. And the reason why we see the genealogies come up and why they play such an important part in the Old Testament is because it's important to know who your family is because that defines where your land is, what property you own, how rich and wealthy you are, all of that stuff. And so what happens is because... Elimelech and Naomi have no, well, Elimelech's dead, but they have no children to pass on their wealth to, their possessions and their land to. If Ruth is to have a child, that child will be known as Naomi's son, not Ruth's. Ruth would raise her. Ruth would just still be that child's mama. But when they go through the genealogies, they're not writing Ruth's name down. Ruth is a Moabite. They're, that child will be recorded as Naomi's descendant, as Naomi's son. And so for Ruth to give up all of that, right, for the sake of Naomi is a tremendous act of sacrifice. And Boaz sees it, understands it, and acknowledges it. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter, verse 11. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now, lie down here until morning. What Boaz tells Ruth is, you've shown your loyalty, you've shown your love, and I will show you that loyalty in time. I will make sure that you're taken care of. The reality is there's someone closer who has first dibs on this. Right? And if he chooses to marry you, then you're going to be taken care of by him. 
But if he doesn't, if he passes those rights to me, I will marry you. Either way, you and Naomi will be taken care of for the rest of your life. That's his promise to her. That's his commitment to her. Loyalty begets loyalty. So last week, uh, most of, or I don't know if most of you, a number of you know that we have our leadership gatherings on the second Sunday of each month. And after our leadership gathering, we have what's called an LDC crew. And it's a crew of 10 of our, our saints who have been involved in leadership for a number of years. And we invited them two years ago to be a part of this, this group to build aspects of doctrinal integrity, uh, to build aspects of character and focus on honing ministry skills. And so it's uh, we've gotten pretty tight over the course of the past two years. And this past uh, week, we celebrated our final LDC time uh, of this cycle, of this, of this class, of this group. And uh, I love that time. Uh, I really have enjoyed these saints. They're our best and our brightest and in many, in so many different ways. And I should, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. I mean, but I, I mean, they're, they're fantastic people. And what I've loved seeing is just the relation, more than the, the, the doctrinal growth and the character growth and the home ministry skills, I've been excited to see how the relationships have been built, right? That we've knit our hearts together. We've had three, almost four kids from that group born over the course of the past two years. I mean, we've gone through life together and difficulties and challenges, but opportunities, and it's been great being able to hear each other's stories, to understand how we think and how we relate and to build this sense of community and to build this sense of loyalty to one another. And I think that's what church needs to be all about, right? I think that's what the, the people of God need to be all about, to discover ways that in a world that doesn't really value commitment anymore for us to be connected. For a wor- In a world that, that kind of looks down on, on loyalty or, or talks about loyalty in grand terms but doesn't exercise it in real life, we need to be the ones who exercise it in real life. It frustrates me to live in a world where I feel like people take their marriage commitment so casually, their friendships can be disposed of so easily, and even people can just walk away from relationships, walk away from friendships, walk away from church, walk away from work and businesses so easily. It's just relationships and loyalty and commitment seem so disposable, and, and as, as the people of God, we need to follow Ruth's example and embody something that's different. Ruth's loyalty, she's a foreigner. She has nothing that attracts her to God except a character. But God sees her character, sees the commitment, sees the loyalty, and gives her favor because of that. And I hope that that's the type of spirit that we embody and embrace as a church as well. I want us to look at the story and example of Ruth and imagine what it might be to live this way, to live with loyalty and commitment and devotion to one another. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned to his house. So Ruth has taken a risk. She's come in the middle of the night, come to Boaz, uncovered his feet and laid down on top of his feet, offering herself, in a sense, to him. And so Boaz is saying, I want to guard your reputation. I know what you're doing is pure, but I don't want anyone else to get the wrong idea of what's happened here. And so he's protecting her like he did last chapter. And so he tells her that before it's light, I want you to make sure that you get up and 
that you're able to head home. And as as the morning comes, as the early morning comes, and she gets up and she's preparing herself to go home, he uh, he offers her six scoops of barley. And uh, just to understand what this this in many ways is just like a dowry. He's saying thank you, right, for your trouble. I want to offer you a dowry in a sense uh, for the upcoming marriage, however it may play out, whether it's with me or with the closer kinsman redeemer. And he's guarding her integrity, he's guarding her heart, and he's also making sure that she's provided for. And that tells you about the type of man that Boaz is. Throughout this, this book, he has conducted himself with honor, with integrity. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her, and she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. So Naomi knows men, right? <laughs> know that if uh, a man's excited about a girl, then he's going to determined about winning a girl, then he's going to move heaven and earth to uh, get that done, and nothing is going to get in his way. That's pretty cool. And next week, when Andrew goes through chapter 4, we're going to see how that goes. But before we go there, I want you to catch something. Ruth speaks her final words, recorded words in the Scripture right here. And it's interesting that her final words recorded in Scripture is, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, because she hasn't done that at all. In every single way, this young, unremarkable woman, in every other sense of the word, has, has chosen by her actions to commit herself to Naomi, to serve Naomi, to love her mother-in-law, not her mama, her mother-in-law, right? to care for her and to offer herself fully because of what she has done. The only remarkable thing about Ruth is her character. And for that, she's recorded in the scriptures for all eternity. We all know who Ruth is because of that loyalty, commitment, character, and integrity. She hasn't left her mother-in-law empty-handed. She won't. You know, uh, I'm excited. I'm actually kind of sad I don't get to close this book out because I think the close is really amazing. If you understand the layers of it, it's really beautiful to see how this whole idea, when we talk about the idea of kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer is flowed through this entire book. It's not just Boaz who acts that way, but God who reestablishes and re, uh, renews what is lost, right? He renews what has been lost. He restores what has been taken. And uh, it's really neat to see how Jesus has functioned that role and even the legacy of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, that it's not just another name or a line item on a lineology or genealogy, but it leads directly to Jesus and the story of Jesus himself. And I'm excited about next week, you guys being here and having Andrew share that story about it. For now, we'll close out. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning and for this time and for the opportunity to go through this book of Ruth. And Lord, I am so excited. I've been excited about not only taking this journey, but being able to hone in and to in read about and study the story of an exceptional woman. And I'm thankful that she's not the only one. I'm thankful that even in this room, there are a number of exceptional women that I find great joy 
and blessing being able to serve alongside, to be able to know, to be able to count as friend, to be able to count as sister in Christ and family, Lord Jesus. And, and uh, Lord, what a testament. And God, I pray for our saints. I know that this is a crazy season, a busy season where we can get so caught up in family and work and trying to tackle all the myriad gifts and presents, and it can be so easy to get distracted and to miss out on, in a sense, the reason for the season, to, to miss out on you, Jesus. And I pray that we would not. Lord, I pray that as, as we meditate on this story of Ruth, as we meditate on this book of, of Ruth, that we would commit ourselves to binding our lives to you, Jesus. We commit ourselves that for the rest of our lives, where you go, Jesus, we will go. Where you take us, where you lead us, we will follow. We will serve, and we will give our lives if necessary so that you might be blessed and that you might be honored. That we would not only do that for you, towards you, but in the context of the body of believers as well, in the context of the church. We would commit ourselves to love one another in this way as you have loved us. Thank you. Thank you for the hope, the joy, the satisfaction, the renewal of life that you've given us through the gift of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Merry Christmas. <laughs>